Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Taliban, and my co-host, Imam Rana Atta. Uh, and we're here in our studios here, uh, Voice of Islam Studios in South well, South London, yeah, Morden, yes, I suppose South it is, yeah. South London. Um, so how are we feeling today, Rana? Ready to go? Yeah, let's... Let's let's crack on. Let's whatever crack whatever on. you. What, it's, well, it's, no, this is a subject I, that you're more excited about, isn't it? Not <laughs> no, not subject. I, I was just <laughs> we were just discussing actually the listeners out there just uh, prior to uh, the show starting. Uh, big news in the footballing world, and uh, there's already a bit of a bit of conjecture here as to uh, yeah. Well, I'm I'm talking about Jurgen Klopp, yeah. uh, Liverpool manager's uh, announcement that he's going to step down at the end of the season, and I I saw his statement that he released, released mm. and yeah, I'm, I'm I pretty much think that you know that's the truth behind it, but you don't. No, um, th- th- this never you know it's never as uh, simple simple as it is in, in mm-hmm. terms of I, the way I've seen football um, and understood it for the past uh, two decades is that there is a, especially in these top tier clubs um, Champions League category A clubs I would say right mm-hmm. the, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes mm-hmm. um, and I believe that um, you know I think the discussion we were having was that the, re- the, the, the reason which is being touted is that he's he's not yeah, running out of energy it, that's his reason he's saying running out of energy mouth. but it is definitely in terms of like the uh, there there is this question of like budget mm-hmm. that he wants or a certain type of um team that he wants to build uh, which isn't uh, this isn't the direction that the But don't you think right okay given that you know the current status and the current team for Liverpool I am you know, to all our listeners out there, I'm not a Liverpool supporter, yeah. but they're challenging in all the major competitions. Yeah. So, you know, there's not too much tweaking yeah. that you think that he needs to do. I um, mean, that team is fully, it is the brand of you. Yeah, oh, it, it is no doubt. Um, but still, he obviously has a view of how he wants to um, stay in touch or say, stay uh, close to Manchester City, right? So mm-hmm. they, they, these are the two, you could say like these, if, if there was a time where Real Madrid and Barcelona were at the top of the world, mm. at least in English football, these two are two of the yeah, best. Okay, yeah, the, uh, even though I'm an Arsenal fan and Arsenal have been doing brilliant, <laughs> but it, it's not. I would be honest. Look, it's we only yeah. fight hard. We we are not exactly at that sort of like quality yeah, level. level. Yeah. Mm. So um, it, it uh, uh, there is also this news about uh, Liverpool uh, are going to release three first teamers. Oh. So it is it's kind of like now starting to make sense that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. there's some more kind of like yeah, bigger yeah. things than just running out of energy for Jurgen Klopp. Yeah. But I think it will be a sorry loss for Liverpool and you know for uh, UK football in because he do, he, does, he said he, he doesn't so want to right? he doesn't want to stay in the UK as well, which is which is a bit of a shame. But mm. um, it makes sense. I mean, he uh, he gave his heart and soul to. Mm. Liverpool, he gave his heart and soul to Dortmund as well, to yeah. be fair. Um, and I believe he's probably going to look for a bigger challenge, or it, not a bigger challenge. You know, the, the Spanish league is not a big challenge, but, <laughs> but he's probably going to go head down that route uh, mm. at some well, point. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see, and we, we'll, we'll kind of like keep keep our eyes out on that yeah. kind of news. But we are drifting. Um, Monday show, we always address uh, contemporary topics. Yeah. Uh, both secular and religious. Uh, so, what's on 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 our cards today? Yeah, well, the first hour is a uh, it's 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 a t- Talib man special. We're going to be discussing um, <laughs> the Brexit okay. uh, and how it's uh, well, it special. But yeah, okay. it, I, I mean, it's sure. something that I, you know. I, I reckon you're going to absolutely enjoy. Yeah, it, but um, it's we we'll be discussing in terms of its economic um, how it's how it's affected the UK economically yeah. and not affected, but more in terms of like down uh, downgraded. 
Yeah, that's. That I mean, that's a general opinion. Uh, we'll see if general it's true. opinion, which we we will uh, obviously try to look if it, uh, to see if mm-hmm. it's true. And um, the second hour is uh, we will be discussing, I believe, uh, the the effects of drugs in children, yeah. uh, children and the usage of drugs. Mm. And uh, are parents naive to this? Uh, yeah. To this. To this. Uh, I think this was sparked off by a uh, a degree student. Um, Unfortunately, taking her own life. But it, I don't think the circumstances were that it's suicide, mm-hmm. but uh, had taken an overdose in ketamine. Mm-hmm. And uh, her mother, really just not knowing anything about her personal, you know, yeah, her what's personal going on in her life, uh, yeah. circumstances at university. And so we'll be looking at you know that uh, topic in general and you know, just really how to be weary and just to be a bit more savvy. Yeah. Uh, if you yourself are a parent, or even you're a student, right? Yeah. You're just trying to chart those un, all those go into those uncharted t- territories. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But without further ado, let's just jump straight into Brexit. Hmm. Now, um, you know, Brexit, as promised in 2018, uh, I mean, have, yeah, has yet to be seen this year in 2024. Now, the idea behind Brexit was that. In general, we'd be better off as an economy uh, if we weren't tied to restrictions of the European Union. Mm. Now, as it turns out, that isn't the case. You know, we're further tied down uh, to the rules and regulations of our, uh, and our economy is suffering uh, immensely. Uh, all different aspects, uh, factors within the economy, uh, and we're going we're to be speaking about that. And we're going to be shedding light uh, on is, what Islamic teachings there are in terms of trade and economy. I, I think uh, Sadiq Khan said some things about... Yeah. Uh, you know, in a Brexit. recent statement, London Mayor Sadiq Khan has said that Brexit has reduced the size of its eco- economy by 6% so far, which means it annually costs £140 billion or £178 billion, wow. with the shortfall seen reaching 10% by 2035. Sadiq Khan said, it's now obvious that Brexit isn't working. The hardline vision... Uh, the the hardline version of Brexit we've ended up with is dragging our economy down and pushing up the costs of living. Sadiq Khan urges the government to make stronger ties with the EU. Britain's National Institute of Economic and Social Research, NIESR, estimated in November that the Brexit had reduced the size of the economy by 2% to minus 3%, with the impact expected to rise to 5% to minus 6% uh, by 2035. A study has calculated that there are now 1.8 million fewer jobs overall in the UK as a result of of Brexit, with almost 300,000 fewer jobs in the capital alone. The study suggests that London's economy is shorter by a little over £30 billion or £35 billion uh, euros due to the divorce from the EU. The average Britain was nearly £2,000 worse off in 2023, while the average Londoner was nearly £3,400 worse off uh, last year as a result of Brexit. Mm, and uh, we've seen uh, one of the government ministers, uh, Kemi Badenoch, uh, recently being questioned on a media, I, th- I believe it was Sky, that, mm. uh, you know, what are these trade deals? What are these new trade deals? You know, 73 new trade deals yeah. uh, that have been negotiated um, globally. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this was one of the benefits of Brexit to, mm. you know, loosen the shackles. <laughs> Excuse me, of the uh, UK government, so that they could negotiate, yeah. you know, trade tariffs around the world, and um, really, in reality, those seventy-three 
well worth 70 renegotiated old mm. trade trading tariffs uh, with our existing partners. And I think the three new ones are uh, Japan, New Zealand and Australia. Mm. Uh, and I think <coughs> some of the stats uh, you know, attributed to what those will bring is something in the region of like, you know, 0.1% mm-hmm. of GDP. So, yeah, was it really was worth it? 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 Yeah, so we're joined actually by our first guest today. Um, um, and it's William Scott Lewis, who is a professor of international politics at the University of Birmingham and founder of EA Worldview. And uh, Professor Lewis is a is an old friend of, of the show. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Professor Willi- uh, William. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Salam alaikum, peace to you and all your listeners. So we're talking about, you know, is you know, the truth of Brexit, you know, has it, um, has it worked for the UK economy? Now, uh, the London mayor, Sadiq Khan, and we've just quoted some of the stuff that he's been saying, uh, that Brexit has reduced the size of the economy by 6%. Now, how do you see this shift? I mean, are we uh, not supposed to actually prosper uh, without... Uh, without being in the EU anymore? Uh, let me tell you a little story. Okay. Back in 2016, that fateful year, um, I did a lot of media work that year. Mm-hmm. And part of my background is in economics. So I was following very closely the economic projections of what would happen if the United Kingdom uh, left the European Union. And the economist, almost without exception, said that in terms of relative prosperity, relative GDP, uh, the UK would suffer a blow uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the worst case scenario, right, what you might call a really hard Brexit without any type of agreements with Europe to cushion the blow. You could lose up to 10% of GDP right. by 2035. Uh, even in the best case scenario, which would be a more managed Brexit where you maintain you know, a, a variety of links with the EU, mm-hmm the loss would be about 4%. So when Sadiq Khan quotes, and it's not his figures, he's quoting uh, the esteemed group Cambridge Econometrica, Mm -hmm. when he says that the UK economy is losing 6% in GDP relative to where it would be had it stayed in the EU, that's right in the middle of those figures. And the kicker to that story is, you know, I would talk to folks like, like I do to yourself, and I really emphasize we need to look at the facts here and we need to look at the analysis. And I would... You know, and I'd be constantly told by people, you're just part of Project Fear. You might mm-hmm. remember that slogan. And I'd just come back and say, well, you know, I prefer to think of it as Project Reality. So, you know, in, in talking to you today, I'm not here to, like, beat my chest and say... Yeah, know, I was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was <laughs> right. Boo Brexit. It's just yeah. very much a realistic assessment of where we are. Because mm. you will have listeners, each of your listeners, who will be affected by that decision that was taken in that referendum... And then its implementation, uh, which is now what just about to meet its fourth anniversary. Mm. I mean, it is a bit. I mean, the expression you know, crying over spilt milk, but it's not one of those decisions wh- whereby, you know, it's cast in stone. Right? We can, you know, given uh, political will, um, maybe not join, rejoin the EU uh, as in our previous. Um, you know, association with the European Union, but at least have some kind of trade union, uh, you know, uh, or you know, some similar deal uh, as to maybe Norway's. 
there's but even those ideas are, are not being mooted around government i i wish and there is a path back and i wish it be taken but mm-hmm. i'll let you in a, in, a, in a bit of a secret i haven't told many people this you know just at a personal level and that is i'm gone uh we're moving to ireland next week <laughs> uh to get back into the eu mm. uh to get back to the broader issue what you could do, and it's a fairly obvious step, is without rejoining the EU, you know, entirely reversing that decision in 2016, because you know that politically it's going to be opposed by, by a lot of politicians mm-hmm. and by a lot of activists, you could come back in and go to into the single market, right? And the single market would offer you the benefits of getting back onto a level playing field in terms of your trading relationship with, with Europe, in terms of your goods, uh, your agriculture, your financial services. And that would give you the path back to more opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the conservative party, which is a very fractured party right now, there's no possibility of it coming back to the center for a pragmatic resolution. If anything, there's a real risk, especially after the conservatives get trounced in the election this year, that it'll go hard right. Mm-hmm. And I mean very hard right. So they'll double down on that message of, we've got to divorce from Europe. Um, in terms of labor, which would be the obvious answer, because I think they are quite likely to, to have the largest share of, of seats and probably a majority in the election. Um, at this point, the opposition leader, Keir Starmer, is extremely cautious. He, he will say very little about mm. the single market, and anything that he does says really points to ruling it out in the near future. So labor could shift once they get back into power, but it might well be that they don't make the move back into the single part market until a second term in government, which will be you know, four years away. Liberal Democrats, um, would, you know, if they could ever get their act together on what exactly they do stand for for the election, <laughs> it would Instead be a good thing. Instead of being on the fence, you mean? Yeah, they, they're just all over the place. They have been, of course, the, the party which historically had taken the strongest line to, to stay within the EU. But the current leader, Ed Davey, has just been all over the map in terms of what he's saying, which means that, you know, probably the party which, you know, is most ardent in terms of getting back into into the into the EU is the Scottish Nationalist yeah. Party. But, of course, they've got serious, serious party difficulties. Well, they have um, issues in actually retaining Scotland, really, come general yeah. election. Yeah, I think there's a good chance Labour will take the largest share mm. of seats in Scotland given mm. their problems. Mm-hmm. So um, what are the major Brexit effects on the UK economy? Well, I mean, just to think about it on a day-to-day basis. Before we, you know, I can give you a lot of percentages and a lot of numbers, but if you think about it, if you are a consumer, that there's a lot more red tape in terms of the products that are being brought into the UK that you buy. Mm-hmm. And I think some of your listeners could probably refer you to cases where they've seen shortages mm-hmm. of certain products, right? Uh, when products do come in, they'll be more expensive to buy because it affects the supply line of food, and it splits the supply line of other goods. Uh, when you have regulations which don't match up with Europe's regulation, when they're in jeopardy, that causes further red tape, further bureaucracy. It doesn't reduce it, and prices go up. Uh, when you talk about uh, trying to export your goods to Europe, you no longer have the benefit of a tariff-free market. Mm-hmm. You know, you have tariffs, that are on your goods. So it's more expensive for UK manufacturers to export to Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, of course, means they have higher cost 
they don't do as well. Um, you know, and they have to think about whether they pass those costs on to other clients or whether they have to contract in terms of what they're doing. Agriculture finds it more expensive to operate. So, for example, when I think finally the health and safety checks are put into place between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, which is due to come into effect on Wednesday, Mm -hmm. that will increase the cost of goods going across because you'll have more paperwork to fill out because our health and safety regulations don't match up with the EU anymore. Mm-hmm. So in terms of trade, manufacturing, investment, all of this is affected. There is one exception, though, which I'll point out to you, because I don't know if, I, I think you all know this, but I wonder if your listeners do. The one area of the United Kingdom that is actually benefiting from Brexit is the one part of the United Kingdom which is still in the European Union. Yeah, Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland, because they are not subject to all of those new regulations and all of those barriers either to importing or exporting goods. And so trade between Northern Ireland and the area to where I'm moving next week, the Republic of Ireland, has substantially increased. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are still political issues in Northern Ireland, but economically it's much better off post-Brexit. So, I mean, in terms of that, right, and coming back, I I know I use the term terminology crying over spilt milk, but actually looking back, uh, at 2016 and the referendum and you were like going around and you the, the majority of data even then was the point that actually this would be effectively cutting off your nose to spite your face yeah really just a backward step in terms of the UK leaving the EU then you know why why upon why you know was there you know the decision to actually leave you know, why was, and this is a bit, you know, looking back uh, on hindsight, but the Remain camp, why did they not espouse all these stats then to us? Instead of us getting from the Leave campaign, that big red double-decker bus going up and down the country saying 350 million uh, to come back into the NHS, which, you know, we've yet to see. Remainers did, (laughs) time and time again. I know, and okay. You, uh, I need to be honest here. I mean, I, you know, I, I am an analyst here, but you can clearly tell I, you know, supported Remain, mm-hmm. uh, and and we did on the basis of facts. We we went on, you know, on radio programs. We went on television. We went to public rallies. But almost inevitably, when we did radio and TV interviews, especially with the BBC, we would we would have to be balanced with someone who came from the opposite side, mm-hmm. right? And that person from the opposite opposite side wouldn't respond directly to the economic arguments we're making, they would put these down as, again, project fear, mm-hmm. and then they would make some type of emotive statement, right? Because mm-hmm. the broader issue here is, is that Brexit was not an economic decision. It was a political decision, which was exploited by certain politicians, and I'll name them if you wish, mm-hmm. and it was an emotive decision. And now I'm going to say something which is just my own personal perspective, probably colored in part because I'm not originally from uh, England. You know, I'm saying England, not the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, was a very much a desire in England to reach back and to say, we are still great. Mm-hmm. We are still Great Britain. And the way that greatness is measured at a time when, remember, we'd gone through an awful lot. You know, we'd had the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. A lot of people still were upset, unsettled by it in 2016. Um, the country is not, you know, necessarily the world power it used to be. 
And so there was this emotive call by folks to say, let's get back to when we were great. Uh, Mr. Farage would call it our Independence Day, which Mm -hmm. kind of rankled, given that Independence (laughs) Day was 1776, as far as I'm concerned. Or they would get back to the idea of, we're better than the Europeans. Mm. We're better than the French. We're better than the Germans. We're better than that EU. And also, that emotion also carried on, not only to we're better than, but also we're protecting ourselves from, which is why one of the big arguments for Brexit was, of course, those people who don't look like us, Mm -hmm. who don't necessarily think like us, who weren't necessarily born in England, and we'll be able to keep them out if we have Brexit. Mm. All of that was in play. Yeah, yeah. The big immigration. I mean, it was fought on two fronts, really. Uh, the two emotive fronts for me was were uh, immigration and sovereignty, uh, both mm-hmm. of which uh, have subsequently been shown to be uh, fallacies, really. But uh, Professor uh, William Scott Lucas, uh, as always, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. And I hope we can still keep in touch whilst uh, when you've joined, rejoined yourself personally with the EU. Oh, I will be fascinating to tell you what's happening from Ireland. Give me a call anytime. Right? <laughs> okay, take care. Uh, have a good day. Cheers. Take care. 0208 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so... You know, what does the Quran tell us regarding the economy? I mean, you know, the economy today, uh, not just here, but globally, is run on money. Now, Islam directs uh, Muslims to uh, as to how to manage their wealth. The Holy Quran says in chapter 2, verse uh, 216, they ask, they ask thee what they shall spend. Say, whatever of good and abundant wealth you spend should be for parents and near relatives and orphans and the needy and the wayfarer. And whatever good you do, Allah, surely Allah knows it perfectly well. Allah the Almighty encourages Muslims to circulate their wealth. Uh, In the economic sphere, the basic concept in Islam is that absolute ownership of everything really just belongs to God alone. Man is God's uh, vicerant on earth. God has subjected uh, to man's service. So, you know, we are but keepers, actually. Keepers for not just... And when we talk wealth, we're talking about not just um, material assets, yeah. Yeah, but physical resources as well, where, where we are, have been tasked with looking after it, not squandering it, but yeah. looking after it, isn't it, right? Yeah, and it, and it kind of ties in well with what you were discussing with the um, doctor as well in regards mm. to, uh, or Professor William Scott Lucas in regards to the immigration aspect. So um, immigration itself, the purpose of it, um, which we would understand is that it is for a better life, okay? Where, mm-hmm. where you, now, Professor himself believes that moving to Northern Ireland is for a better life because yeah. he's... Well, he's he, actually going to the Republic of he, Ireland. The Republic of Ireland. Yeah. But because he is sick and tired of what he is experiencing because of Brexit, mm. right now, uh, I could un- prob- we could all maybe relate, mm. uh, is looking for a more comfortable sort of life, okay? Mm. So that's the whole uh, concept of immigration in this case, right? And as you've mentioned in regards to the Holy Quran, um, that the duty of man generally is not to, uh, you know... Hold on to wealth. Yeah, it is squander to, it. Exactly. It is to um, use it in the right ways mm-hmm. for uh, everyone. And uh, that's exactly the case we're seeing. I mean, there's a blockage of um, 
of of immigration because you don't uh, you feel maybe that that wealth needs to be squandered. I mean, you must have heard that uh, that ratio, right? Yeah. That ninety nine percent of the world's wealth, yeah. right, is held actually right. in point point zero 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 one percent of the population. It's, it's, it's like everyone's uh, you know everyone's got a way of expecting. Oh, there's only three thousand people in the world that have ninety nine percent of the world's wealth. Yeah. So, um, which makes which probably makes sense. Um, but uh, in that sense, not you if you're in the other category. <laughs> yeah, no. To them, all it's like okay, but, but uh, it makes you 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 do get the idea. Okay, when you read Forbes magazines mm. or uh, you know you you read all the UK tax returns, the people who've paid the most tax. Um, mm. So yeah, that is a lot of money that a, a certain individual. Or, and that, and, and yeah. that's that's I think that's the point that uh, Islam makes that that money Should is be, not being circulated. Yeah, it's it, being kept it's in there. these bank it's, accounts, it's, right? It's, it's kept there. Exactly. Yeah, these Lamborghinis and whatnot. Uh, yeah. that a few so of the us lam- can. The, the Lambos are, you know, they're paying their taxes. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But anyway, we're joined by our next guest of the afternoon, Sean Richards. Now, Sean is an economist specialising in inflation and monetary economy. Assalamu alaikum. Peace, uh, peace and blessings be upon you, Sean. Thanks once again for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, good afternoon. So we're talking about, you know, are there truly any uh, Brexit benefits um, that, you know, we, uh, we have seen or yet to see? Uh, I mean, has Brexit actually, instead of being a benefit, formed a drag? A, you know, there's a drag coefficient related to Brexit and it's pushing us down and dragging down our economy. Do you think so? I mean, the the argument in some ways is simple, other ways complex. The initial impact from when we left, people who probably remember that the pound fell that night and Mm -hmm. for its thing. Now, that raised inflation by about 1.3%, That was the beginning. At the time, people were afraid the economy were going to recession. We didn't. And we moved on. Mm -hmm. There's been a debate since as to the overall impact. At the minute if you believe the purchasing managing survey, we've sort of come through Christmas and come out of it doing better than the Euro area. Mm-hmm. So to my mind, this, uh, this was my opinion from when people were deciding how to vote. There's a lot of things going on mm-hmm. in the world and it's only one of them. And so there's so many other impacts at the time. No one had any idea of COVID or something like that. Did they? Mm-hmm. But we are seeing more and more other events. So I've always been quite sanguine about it. An issue in certain things, like I described with inflation there at the beginning, yes. But in general, for other things, less so, Mm -hmm. because there's so much else going on. I'll give you an example, because one of the Brexit topics was car production on the one side saying, well, we've got a deal because Germany wants to sell us cars. And on the other side saying, oh, how will we be able to sell cars into Europe? Mm-hmm. Well, at the minute, the big issue for all of us, and I mean those in the European Union and the UK, is that China's looking to expand into electric vehicles. Mm. Well, China is, already, China, China is already the largest producer of EV vehicles globally. Exactly. So there's, you know, I think that there's so many other issues and it's a relatively minor one. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of benefits, I would have hoped that we'd have looked more away from just looking at Europe all the time. But I'm afraid our political class don't, you know. And I mean, some of these issues are going to remain. It's going to be 22 miles from Dover or whatever it is, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. not going to move. Mm-hmm. 
But in terms of attitude, we keep, and, and there's a lot going on in the rest of the world, in my opinion, and markets. And if anything, Europe in general is slipping backwards. So we need to, in my opinion, look wider about the Middle East, mm. India, you know, but then, China to some extent. Sorry, yeah, in, that's in, in, um, in terms of that, so leaving Brexit and leaving the EU has freed our hands uh, as the UK government of having to, you know, we can negotiate our own trade deals. So then, you know, why haven't there been more, or why hasn't there been more success on that front then? There's been some, I think, like the uh, negotiations in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. But uh, in general, if we look at our government, it's not very good, is it? <laughs> yeah. So that's well, another reason. That has been it? noted, Sean. That has been noted. <laughs> you know, and this is a, a generic issue. And I'm afraid I see that on the other side. Let's say that we'd remained and okay. we'd stayed in. We'd probably be now having a discussion about things going wrong in Europe, for example, now. I don't know whether the Financial Times story today in itself is a form of blackmail and they don't really intend it, or they do, but this idea of punishing Hungary, mm -hmm. whether you like Hungary or not, it is the government. Is it their job to do that? Mm. I wouldn't think so. And so, you know, that's... And then, as I said, I mean, for example, a thing that's changed in many ways since the actual vote was, if at that time... Germany would have been perceived as an economic powerhouse. Mm. Now, when you talk about Germany's economy, you end up with a list of problems, mm -hmm. which to my mind, number one is the energy issue. They sold their soul to Russia and to some extent to things like wind power. Now they're a bit stuck, aren't they? Mm. Mm. So um, how do you see these borders? Uh, how do you see these border post checks marking a substantial shift in the logistics of goods arriving in the country. Will this further increase the cost of living in the UK? Um, well, the Financial Times is very much on the side of thinking all of these things are awful. And I noticed that it thinks over three years it will be a 0.2% impact on inflation. Mm -hmm. So not very much, mm -hmm. if that turns out to be true. Um, and also, as we go forward, I think it's likely that we'll look for other sources. Um, for, you know, in terms of things like, I don't know, one of the stereotypes was, say, tomatoes from Spain and so on. Mm. Well, you can look to places like Morocco and Algeria. Now, obviously, that won't happen overnight. And if there's trouble when these things come in on Wednesday, won't be for that. But in passing years, if things get more difficult, then we'll find other suppliers. Mm. And that would be a shame in many respects because some of these are, you know, long-lasting relationships. Mm. But things do move on in time. Yeah, I think one of the problems, Sean, is that uh, change is inevitable. It's whether we as a country um, can adapt to that change. It is inevitable. I mean, we don't, you know, we're not mired uh, in technology uh, of our, you know, our, of our forefathers. You know, we've moved on, right? But it's whether, um, I suppose, the population in general can accept that, okay, you know, this is where we're at currently post-Brexit. Uh, and, you know, there are some elements which aren't working. And can we uh, endeavor to maybe find new markets, right? I mean, one of the, um, I suppose, 
arguments that the government has used and uh, the actual Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, uh, regarding inflation. And you know, you're a specialist in inflation. I mean, do have they really got control of inflation? Does the government have control of inflation? Well, no, because they gave the job to the Bank of England. So does the uh, government... Uh, sorry, so then, therefore, does the Bank of England have control of inflation? Because... To my mind, the only tool they have is by increasing or decreasing the rate, uh, the basic bank rate. But that's that does have some impact. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually, there's something else they've done this afternoon, which is um, when the COVID pandemic came in, they bought in this enormous amount of bonds, and they sold some of them. So it's raising our bond yields. That's mm-hmm. an again, that's another form of interest rate rise, if you like. Mm-hmm. So in principle, the same thing. Um, but interest rate increases are a very brutal method of doing something because mm. people reply to me, and it's a perfectly valid argument, that you're dealing with someone's cost of living by, say, with people with mortgages, you're raising theirs, aren't you, yeah. as well? You're making it worse. And that's true in other interest rates if businesses are paying them and so on. Mm. Um, so it's by no means an ideal weapon. But over time, it does tend to work. The problem is also... Um, I'm sure I've said before when I've been on here. The thing is, it has a very lagged effect. Mm. So it's something like a brick on a piece of elastic that will clang in in some month's time. And that might not be the right time. So in terms of the Bank of England controlling it, well, A, it didn't make a very good job of it because mm. it let it run right at first. B, now it is giving it a go. Whether that will apply at certain times. Um, if we move on now to the government and it's, target of halving inflation well some of that's silly because in various things it's actually raised it mm. um, there was a thing in the latest inflation numbers I think it was tobacco duties went up so for example that raised it and there have been other uh, examples of things they've done that have put it up for instance the mess that is our energy policy we have some of the same weaknesses as Germany and listeners might not realise that recently we've seen quite large falls in the wholesale market for natural mm. gas futures. And I think that's that's but, one of the confusing things. But in January, things. everyone saw the prices go yeah, exactly. up. exactly. It's, it's like, that's that's what's confusing. When you do get it through the media that actually wholesale gas prices have fallen, but how why is that not reflected in our bills then? Well, it's because of the way that they structured um, the way that the free monthly system we have works. So people will see quite a substantial fall in April. Mm-hmm. Now, at current prices, it will be around 16%. Probably shouldn't change too much because most of the mass is now done. But, of course, you know, it, as it happens, today's a mild day, but we might go through the cold period where people will be using it more for obvious reasons mm. when prices are higher. Yeah, That's really badly thought out, in my opinion. And back to one of the answers I gave earlier, I, I'm afraid government generically at the minute is poor mm. and our political class are not very good. Yeah. And that's how these maybe, things... Maybe it's time for a change then. Yeah, well, I think that, I, in my opinion, I think it happens whichever class. I can see perfectly how people think this is a load of nonsense. Let's mm. get someone else in. True, true that. Well, Sean, as always, uh, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. It's been, uh, as always, very informative. No problem. My pleasure. Thank you. Take take care. Have a good day. Thank you. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, and... 
You know, we're talking about some of the impacts uh, just briefly with both our guests here uh, regarding um, Brexit and some of the issues around Brexit. Now, uh, and I think uh, Professor Scott had touched on it. Starting on Wednesday, the UK is set to implement changes that mirror what the EU has had in place for UK exporters for the past three years. These changes involve the requirement of sanitary uh, certificates for meat and dairy, as well as cytosanitary certificates for plant products. Uh, Post-Brexit changes uh, dated January the 1st, 2021, when the UK officially left the single market on that date, uh, sanitary and photo, uh, phytosanitary certificates became mandatory for all UK exports to mainland Europe. Physical ex, uh, inspections were also introduced at UK uh, EU borders. Now, the reason for these reciprocal measures is that the UK's decision to do this was influenced by the WTO, the World Trade Organization rules, which state that trade borders for the EU should match those for the rest of the world. So hence, you know, this is a duplication of red tape, really. Mm. And, you know, that's why uh, I think uh, Professor Lucas was saying, you know, one of the, the... the actual thriving part of the economy in the UK currently is Northern Ireland mm. because Northern Ireland is, um, to all intents and purposes, still in the EU. Exactly, yeah. And um, th- there is no exact, there's no like, um, you know, when you were talking about the um, red tape part. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it seems like his, his, it, is his, it is the right decision for his uh, <laughs> personal life that he's mm. moving uh, there. But um, there was also this um, interesting question that we asked on Instagram mm-hmm. uh, is the UK better off after the, ex- uh, the Brexit so we we put it out there for yeah. our uh, our viewers and our listeners, uh, listeners. Um, and uh, you know they it's unanimously a, a, a massive no 77% believe no 77 77% wow. believe uh, it's a no but you know there is this question of um, are the listeners mostly from uh, are they based in London mm-hmm. is it because they are experiencing it as um <laughs> London residents that this is a uh, mm. this was a bad choice or are they um, based outside of the EU as well? Well, we don't we don't know that. You know, this is, is the thing yeah, is we 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 have we, in terms of reach, yeah, Voice of Islam being is, a digital, uh, being a DAB radio station, we have we have reach reach right in Londonderry, yeah. which is in Northern Ireland, I believe, yeah. uh, up north as well. Exactly. So yeah, our listeners are are far reaching or far yeah. far afield from uh, London as such, and we're not that London centric. Yeah. But I know a lot of the comments that we've quoted so far have been from uh, London's Mayor Sadiq Khan. But they are equally um, voiced as well by Andy Burnham, Mm -hmm. who is the uh, uh, mayor of Manchester. Right. So, yeah, we we, we do have that, uh, that actually overall, I think the acid test is that, you know, as soon as it costs you in your pocket, Mm That's when you think, right, okay, yeah. was it a good thing for me? So, you know, I would like to maybe ask you this um, because uh, I believe you, you you definitely followed it a lot more than mm-hmm. I did right at the time besides maybe just voting, okay? But um, the, 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 the vote to leave mm-hmm. was far more in the outskirts of London, okay? Right. That's what I could, I could recall and I could mm-hmm. understand. So... Um, do you think that the people outside of London are, uh, you know, have we, do, do are they also regretting uh, this decision of, you know, has has London uh, become a place where it tips out most people who cannot uh, 
afford to stay there anymore because of these new well, changes. Uh, are they some, happy with it? Okay, so in some respects, I do agree with Sean, yeah. uh, our previous guest, that it's not just one factor, mm. but uh, a, a, a perfect storm of factors yeah. have come in. And Brexit being one of them, we've had COVID, yep. you, know, you have the war in Ukraine, these conflicts around the world. But ultimately, personally, I would say it's political choice, yep. which has driven a wedge through this country. Mm. And when you say those outside of city centers, yep. uh, especially were, those who voted uh, yeah, leave, vote leave, yeah. right? Look, maybe they believed. Uh, that truly their vote was for the correct reasons. Yeah. That we would be more prosperous, mm. uh, having our own sovereignty, yeah. making our own decisions, uh, also restricting immigrants coming into the country. Now, mm. I, I personally remember that these were the two big fronts. Now, you know, that's where you now look at, well, was there political bias? Was there media bias uh, in regards to pushing forward the, the vote leave because in my mind I still have that red double-decker bus going up and down the mm -hmm. country and on the side blazing 350 million coming back to the NHS mm. so these were all lies yeah. ultimately right which time has shown right the, the truth the next, the next day showed right so yeah. especially the NHS one I, b yeah. I believe it was debunked the very next day the person yeah. pretty much led the uh, the campaign was like no this, so, this is not what we meant yeah, you're asking me yeah. that question I think yes we were just I, I think we were manipulated mm. a lot, right? Uh, by who and by for what uh, purpose? Maybe that's yet to be uh, um, you know shown. Determined within, but ultimately, within, yeah, within the you know, I think it has. Um, I wouldn't say decimated, but it has put us kind of like on the back foot. But we're joined by Catherine Barnard now, our next guest. Now, Catherine is a professor of EU law, uh, employment law, and senior tutor and fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, uh, Professor Barnard. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Good afternoon to you all. So we're talking about the impact uh, of Brexit. You know, is it really, you know, I mean, if you can talk to us uh, more specifically, okay, about how Brexit has impacted, you know, the employment sector. Yeah. So um, uh, the, on the positive side, uh, mm -hmm. it must be said that the, there was great fear that there would be huge um, exodus, particularly from jobs in the city. Uh, and that hasn't happened. That said, it's probably the case that um, best part of 10,000 jobs have moved, possibly more. Mm -hmm. um, you're not seeing a big bang effect, but you're seeing a slow exodus. Mm -hmm. um, in other areas of the country, there's some areas of the country which have been um, more hard hit. And it must be said that there is a correlation between um, the leave voting areas <clears throat> and the areas of the country which were particularly badly affected by, uh, by Brexit through lo loss of jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, what we're also seeing is that uh, some of the jobs um, which were previously done by EU migrant workers, for example, working in chicken factories and on farms, mm -hmm. those jobs are still being done by EU migrant workers who've got settled status, i.e. the right to stay. Mm -hmm. But there's um, in Norfolk, which is where there's a large uh, poultry factory, Bernard Matthews, has, yep. um, we all heard of to, that that name. Bernard yeah, Matthews that's right. They're going to close. <laughs> they're going to exactly right. They're going to close down that factory wow. because they can't get um, new workers to work there post Brexit. Mm -hmm. 
So what we're seeing is it's not the catastrophic picture that some who were supporting Remain um, were suggesting might happen, but there has been a slow decline. We're also seeing some of the jobs are being done by automation. But what we're also seeing is in the healthcare sector, particularly in the social care sector, the jobs are not being done by British nationals, but they are being done by um, uh, immigrant labour from... Uh, Outside of the globe, EU. Philipp- exactly, Philippines, mm-hmm. India, Pakistan, Nigeria. Mm-hmm. So uh, many businesses have been cautious about investing and hiring new employees due to the uncertainty surrounding the UK's future relationship with the EU. What will be the future in the next few years, according, in your opinion? <laughs> uh, mm. I wish I wish I knew. If I, if we we want to know I'm... the crystal ball. <laughs> yeah, tell us the right answer. For that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, it must be said the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, which was the deal that was done between the UK and the EU, is very thin indeed. Mm. And so what we're seeing is that the paperwork necessitated by the new trading arrangements has meant that small companies have stopped exporting to the EU. Big companies continue to uh, export to the EU because, of course, they've got the staff who can fill out the paperwork as required. Mm -hmm. But there is a real uh, drop-off in the number of uh, exporters, different numbers of exporters exporting to the EU. Now, the interesting question is that there is meant to be a, a review of the implementation of the TCA in early 2026. Some people are hoping for a much, much better trade deal with the EU. But the EU at the moment is sending out the message, steady as she goes, um, the review will be a bit of light dusting. It's not going to be a substantial change. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is the case that, you know, there will be a a change in the political uh, system here. Could that be the case? Yeah, so if Labour gets into power, which is what at the moment the polls are predicting, um, the question is whether the e- the Labour Party will want to close a deal with the EU. Now, the Labour Party is incredibly worried about saying anything about the EU mm. at the moment for the simple reason that they know that a lot of their otherwise supporters uh, voted Leave and mm. thus supported Boris Johnson in 2019. Mm. So they're very reluctant to say anything at all. Um, But uh, it may be that given that the Labour Party have got such uh, ambitious um, goals for growth, um, the only way that they'll get some of that growth is um, through having a closer relationship with the EU. Remember, too, that while there'll be elections in the UK, probably towards the end of the year, there will also be elections in Europe. European Parliament elections will take place in Mm -hmm. um, the late spring this year. And that may well usher in a very new type of EU, not so tainted with the really very poisonous fights that took place um, mm. after sort of 2018, 2019. Yeah, post, post-referendum, post really. I mean, in terms of uh, what do you think, Catherine? Like, has the UK really taken advantage of uh, our post-Brexit freedoms? Well, I mean, I think it's striking to see that Anne Widdicombe yesterday, a leading Brexiter, (laughs) was saying, no, we have not. Um, Now, of course, lots of people would say, well, a lot of these freedoms were really uh, fanciful because we live in a very interconnected world. The Mm. EU continues to be our biggest trading partner. And anything we want to sell to the EU has got to comply with EU law. So if we diverge, i.e. we have different rules, 
our manufacturers will have to make still according to EU standards to sell into the EU market, particularly important in respect of cars where you've got complex supply chains. Mm. So the reality of all of this is that um, we haven't in fact been able to diverge very much, certainly not as much as Brexiters want, because of the practical reality of trading with the EU. Mm. Mm. Exactly. Well, Catherine... Uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, this afternoon and shedding some light on uh, this this very complex, still complex issue of Brexit, <laughs> really. Indeed. Thank you very much. Have a good Thanks day. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. 0208 687 7878 or tweet us at voiceofislam.co.uk. And, um, you know, that's, that's the thing, I think, Rana, that uh, we have seen... I think on the, you know, in our own pockets, right? In terms of how uh, we, as a as a as a nation, have suffered, mm. right, from that. And I think something that Catherine was like saying that, you know, one of those ideas of Brexit was to actually actually give our own mm. population a chance at Labour, mm. right? Um, well, I don't mean Labour like voting for Labour, but actually, right, okay, these. These jobs uh, that you're supposed these to be foreigners saying that who have come taking, over, okay, yeah. uh, taking our jobs. Yeah. Now we can reta- re- retake those yeah. jobs. But funnily enough, instead of EU nationals mm. populating those it's jobs, not, yeah, you, it's actually non-EU, non-EU nationals, nationals um, populating those jobs. And it, it's it's more in uh, I, you know I think because uh, you're specifically maybe you are specifically uh, you have the the NHS um, nurses and their staff in mind um maybe it is those jobs which they uh, which they would prefer um from that that um ethnic background might mm-hmm. prefer to go into these sort of jobs um and there are jobs that you require right now which were particularly good uh, or were crafted well through that uh, through certain ethnic backgrounds which have not um been engaged with anymore since the um, since since the re- referendum, but um, th- yeah, that that is more in terms of that's more of a question in regards to ethnicity. But mm. yeah, you 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 do draw an interesting point that look the, the, they're open now. You know, if the, those yeah, are the comes, jobs, how comes yeah, how comes w- we're w- occupying? Yeah, as, why as, why are you UK? not? But then you, you would then still remember you would still think that maybe as a British uh, identity or a British nationality, okay. You either are very well educated and you go into certain fields, maybe mm. in law, in uh, economy, eco- economics or uh, in science or whatever. But uh, j- let's say you don't. Mm. You know, what are typically British jobs? OK, mm. that's a separate question. And yeah, but ha- a, ha- a job, ha- ja- a job is a job. But what is a typically British, British or job. English okay. job? Okay? Well, that could be. And have we evolved? Another... Yeah. Have we evolved out of that Post Brexit, mm. you know that. That's you mean the, the stereotype? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, okay. That's the question. So uh, we're joined by our final guest of the day on this segment, Jonathan Portes. Now, jo- uh, Jonathan is a professor of economics and public policy uh, at the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. Assalamualaikum, peace and blessings be upon you, Professor Portes. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, yes, good afternoon. Uh, it's just quite straight to the point. Is Brexit hurting the UK economy, in your opinion, Professor? Um, yes, and I don't think it's really an opinion. There's a degree of consensus among economists around this. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not about how much. Um, I would say it, you know, Brexit has not been a catastrophe for the UK economy. We have grown somewhat mm-hmm. um, slower than we would have if it hadn't been for Brexit. 
Um, and our trade has been hurt by the new trade barriers with the EU that uh, are a direct result of Brexit. So it's not a disaster. Um, we shouldn't exaggerate. But on balance, there's no doubt the impact has been negative. Mm, but to see, I mean, I think of it as being, and I've used the, the, uh, the, the terminology, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. It was something that we didn't need to do. Um, that's right. Brexit was a political choice. And mm. there are obviously political arguments for and against Brexit that go beyond the economic ones. Um, and, you know, uh, but obviously the economic ones were important. And the fact that Brexit has indeed turned out to be um, damaging is probably what accounts, at least to some extent, for the uh, the fact that if you ask most people now, it's pretty clear there wouldn't be a majority to do it again. Mm, mm -hmm. True. I mean, you know, we, we're seeing a lot of industry. Um, I mean, most recently, let's say Tata Steel, right, in uh, in Wales, closing its foundries, uh, although getting 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 quite a substantial government subsidy. I mean, you know, there's there's a, there is high unemployment and there's a high unemployment rate in the UK. I mean, is this primarily due to post Brexit? Well, we have. I mean, that's not quite true, right? Unemployment mm -hmm. is not particularly high. Um, it's okay. gone up a little compared to its lows, but it's still only just over 4%. Okay. So by historic standards, that's actually pretty low. Yeah, because I think like, normally you, 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 a certain percentage of that, like maybe 1% to 2% is structural unemployment anyway. Um, that's right. I mean, we are not quite at the lowest levels ever, but we're not far off it. So mm. employment, you know, un unemployment is not the most important problem that the UK is facing at the moment. There are a lot of a lot of uh, uh, problems that we do have, and and you know that's not to um, downplay the uh, what's happened, for example, as you say, to to workers at Tata Steel who mm. are facing the loss of their jobs and indeed unemployment um, and losing what they you know jobs that are relatively well paid mm. um, that they've done for a long time. So, of course, there are problems, but, uh, but unemployment's not the main problem with the, the UK faces, as opposed to slow growth, um, the fall in wages, you know, the stagnation of real wages over the last 10 or 15 years, and of course, uh, public underfunded and crumbling public services. Mm -hmm. So how has Brexit affected business investment in the UK? Um, it seems pretty clear that Brexit has reduced business investment. And, Britain, and again, this isn't just about Brexit. The UK has, has had a long-standing problem of business investment being too low. Mm -hmm. But the uncertainty and instability associated with Brexit um, has had a sort of further damaging effect. Um, uh, and that account is one of the reasons that business investment remains too low. Mm -hmm. And just finally, uh, you know, what in your opinion, you know, do you think, you know, four years uh, since leaving Brexit, you know, are we actually better off? Uh, no, I mean, Brexit has made us somewhat worse off than we are, would otherwise have been. Um, as I always say, though, I mean, we shouldn't put it all down to Brexit. There's lots of other things going on. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Brexit is not the root of all the UK's problems. It's just mm -hmm. another thing that has made things worse than they than they otherwise would have been for uh, for us overall. So would you say that Brexit has been more of a catalyst uh, in terms of our um, falling, you know, falling from being, you know, the sixth uh, biggest nation in terms of GDP? I mean, the, the size of the country's economy 
um, compared to others doesn't, you know, isn't really a very good indication of anything. Mm. You know, India has surpassed us because they're a much bigger, much faster growing, developing country. It's not really comparable. Um, I would say that what you know, we have performed relatively badly over the last 15 years. Part of that was because of the impact of austerity. Part of it is Brexit, and part of it is sluggish productivity growth, which is actually common to the UK, to other European mm-hmm. countries as well as the UK. It's not just a, a mm-hmm. UK So it's a decline through Europe as, as such. Uh, Professor Portes, it's, I, I know it's quite brief, but uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Uh, so just briefly, uh, in conclusion to this, uh, you know, do we have anything to say? Did His Holiness have anything yeah, to say? Yeah, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya community, His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmad states, Islam teaches us how to conduct our financial and econo- economic affairs and outlines the responsibilities of a true Muslim in his financial dealings. Whilst Islamic teachings, which are given in the Holy Quran, command Muslims to fulfill the rights owed to God, at the same time, they also instruct us to fulfill the rights of God's creation. Mm. So that's uh, our first segment of the day done. Uh, on Brexit. Uh, Join us after the news where we will be tackling drugs and, you know, are parents naive to the threat of drugs? You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Asalaamu Alaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Rana Atta. So, in our first hour, we covered Brexit. Uh, were there any benefits? And I think pretty much, Rana. The majority of our guests, I would say, would say no, not really. Yeah, and um, agreed. Uh, they, that's what the sense we got. But um, I would also say, look, the, maybe a lot of the people we talked to are, um, you know, were pro-Remain as well. So um, it would always be interesting to get uh, the views of um, people who are strongly pro-Leave uh, mm-hmm. and how they see it now. So um, to to actually see whether they think uh, we are better off. Yeah, but no, we 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 know. We, that, I can that, tell you now, right? Nadine, uh, not Nadine Doris, uh, Anne Widdicombe, yeah. who was, I think, back in the day uh, in David Cameron's cabinet. And, yeah. you know, call, please call us on 0208 687 if you can uh, verify that for me. She was very much Pro- vote leave, vote leave. Yeah. And she herself now has come to the realization that it hasn't worked. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it makes sense as well, to be fair. Look, it's it's, it's just the current situation doesn't seem very uh, inspiring. So mm, True, true that. So let's uh, move on to our next topic of the day, which is uh, drugs. Now, are parents too naive? Um, in chapter 2, verse uh, 220 in the Holy Quran, it says, the, They ask thee concerning wine and the game of hazard. Say... In both there is great sin and also some advantages for men, but their sin is greater than their advantage. Now, even though uh, within this verse it refers to drinking, uh, but it can also be related to drugs, so something which is um, you know, harmful to you, right? 
uh, and the sin of drug misuse is greater than the advantages uh, that are apparent to mm. to to you know to mankind. Now, po- uh, parents often grapple with the complexity of the drug landscape, facing challenges in staying informed about evolving uh, substances and understanding their children's experiences. Uh, the question is uh, of whether parents are too naive about drugs involves exploring the gaps in awareness, communication and education that may hinder effective prevention and you know, supporting your kids, right? Supporting yeah. um, you know, your offspring. Yeah. I mean, why, why are drugs uh, or why is drug usage so high in children currently? Yeah, children may use drugs for various reasons and it's often complex interplay of uh, it's a, it's often a complex interplay of factors. Some uh, some common reasons include peer pressure, influence from friends, and social circles can lead children to experiment with drugs to fit in or be accepted. Curiosity, wanting to explore and understand the effects of substances out of the out of curiosity can uh, drive experimentation, escape or coping mechanism. Children facing stress, anxiety, or difficult emotions may turn to drugs as a way to escape or cope with their feelings. Uh, parental parental influence. Now that's uh, you know that's uh, that's interesting because we are discussing the the element of um, mm. our parents naive, but there is this aspect of parents also influencing it in the sense that children may be influenced by the behaviour of their parents or family members either through direct exposure or as a reaction to family dynamics. Media influence. Depictions of drug use in media can contribute to a perception that it is normal or glamorous activity influencing children's attitudes. Environmental factors. Growing up in environments with easy access to drugs or in uh, communities with where substances use where substance use is prevalent can increase the likelihood of child children using drugs lack of awareness or education insufficient knowledge about the risks and consequences of drugs can uh, of drug use can con- contribute to experimentation and rebellion some children may use drugs as a form of rebellion against authority or societal norms I mean, that, that's uh, the rebellion seems to be very like um, you know something I would like to know about more that how has um, you know drugs been used uh, in the cause of uh, well I don't know if you if you say for instance had such a strict upbringing yeah. right it's a form of rebellion yeah. you, know, you know maybe my parents never used I mean we look at drugs maybe alcohol abuse yeah. of alcohol uh, but drugs in, in, in per se can be used as a form of rebellion. Yeah. Right. Now look, I'm, I'm, I'm. You know, whatever. All of these uh, teachings you've given me, no, that's it. I'm going out for a spliff. That is that is that is that what you're? You know, that's it. I'm rebelling, rebelling against my parents. Or well, yeah, it is. It's like um, okay. So let's put it in in terms of say, for instance, you know, you're, uh, you're you've got a daughter, right? Yeah. And you you know bring her up to be you know look you're not supposed to yeah and we as being Muslims yeah, yeah. we don't encourage having boyfriends and girlfriends yeah. right uh, relationships outside of marriage so given that maybe she's growing up in a society whereby TV media social media would be encouraging that yeah. right then what would be a form of rebellion for her okay then. I'm going to rebel against my upbringing and how my parents have uh, taught me mm. by what? By going out with a guy. Mm. So, okay, in terms of drugs, 
it is a bit of a stretch, right? Yeah. I take your point. It's like, well, do I do, uh, do I do I rebel is, uh, against my upbringing by going out and yeah. you know taking a puff of crack cocaine? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, it's you, yeah. that that's the, I wouldn't say it would be a stretch, but there's definitely something to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's 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 more about working out how has it happened and uh, I mean, know, I think a it, lot. Why of, would it happen? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think a lot of those you know reasons for children uh to maybe first you know try drugs right, right. yeah there's curiosity you can understand the peer pressure i uh, as well yeah. you know if you're, all your friends are doing it and you know that is a, a common i suppose um factor going back to what you like saying parental influence mm. right so parental influence children being influenced by the behavior of their parents so I, I always remember something that our fourth Khalifa, uh, Khalifa uh, Rabi, uh, was saying in a question and answer session regarding this, was that, you know, if you yourself, say, for instance, and, and we equate drugs with, say, you know, alcohol abuse, mm. right, or anything which is taken to an extreme. So if you yourself are exhibiting this behavior yeah. in front of your child, uh, and you're the parent. Mm. So you're the first people that your children idolize or look up to you, normally is your parents, parents right? Yeah. Uh, so if you as a child see that your parents are indulging in you know, yeah, uh, drugs, yeah. misuse of drugs or whatever, for whatever reason, even if it's recreational, uh, then... It's understandable that you know, your child will try yeah, to mimic it's that. Fine. It's going to be fine at some point in my life to go and my my father, or my mother won't won't stop me from doing it because that you know how how can they stop me from doing it? They used to do it themselves. Yeah, exactly. It'd be a bit hypocritical, really, yeah, right? Yes. So I'm only doing what they they're doing. So I can understand that. Now, some of the consequences of drug use in children is quite obvious, right? Um, you know, there's the health risks. You know, exposure to drugs can lead to physical, mental health issues, uh, uh, including addiction, impaired cognitive, cognitive function, yeah. respiratory problems, and increased vulnerability to drugs. Uh, academic challenges. You know, drug use can uh, negatively impact their performance, uh, leading to declining grades, absenteeism, and an increased likelihood of dropping out of school. Behavioral issues. Uh, children using drugs may exhibit uh, changes in their behavior, such as mood swings, uh, aggression, uh, irritability, and engaging in risky activities. Yeah. Uh, family strain. Substance abuse in children often places a significant strain on family relationships, uh, leading to conflict, trust issues, and disruptions in communication. And then finally, you know, we have developmental delays. Uh, substance abuse can hinder healthy uh, emotional and psychological development, leading to long-term challenges in personal health and growth. So, you know, really, it's crucial for parents, uh, educators, you know, teachers and communities to try and work together to prevent and address, you know, drug use uh, or drug misuse, I should say, yeah. in children. You know, early intervention, open communication and access to supportive resources can help mitigate the negative consequences uh, associated with the uh, with substance abuse. Now, a uh, uh, hadith, which is a, a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, uh, was narrated by uh, Jabba in Abdul, Abdullah. 
Now, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings uh, be upon him, said, if a large amount of anything causes intoxication, a small amount of it is prohibited. So that's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, you know, yeah. if, a, if a lot of it's going to totally knock you out, then even a small bit, you just can't allow yourself to even just indulge yeah, a no, little bit. It's, uh, this is more in terms of, you know, th this is more, uh, you know, in terms of like how to explain it. Um, it's some people could argue that, you know, for instance, there are uh, certain cans of drinks which only have maybe 0.5% of a uh, of a prohibited substance, mm -hmm. especially prohibited in some substance. Um, so, that you know, it, it, I remember I, rem I saw like a, a video of, of a sheikh and he said, look, I drink this, uh, and even if I drink a thousand cans of it, I'm not going to get intoxicated because it mm -hmm. has zero point this much. Uh, but he had to he had to pull that back. He, the, the backlash w uh, towards it was, um, you know, no, this this hadith is pretty. It's pretty clear cut. Um, you know, you, you, you don't even go down this path of thinking that. Look, oh, you know, a little bit isn't gonna. It's it's no harm. It's it's yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly, no harm. It's exactly yeah. the same argument as like when you say about a white lie. Yeah. You know, oh, this is a white lie. Yeah. You know, it's only a little it's thing, a, it's, right? It's just, it's just, it's not, in fact, it's not I'm, only, I'm, only, yeah. I'm only indulging in this little white lie because I don't I'm, I'm hurt saving... The, I don't... Exactly. Yeah, I don't want to hurt that person's feeling. feeling. Yeah. But ultimately, a lie is a lie, right? Yeah. I mean, look, it, 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 it's... The essence of Islam is, uh, I would I would say, is, look, it's, it's, it's clear-cut um, and it doesn't leave you to uh, having to wonder about, hey, if I do it like this... Mm. I'll still go to heaven, maybe. Uh, no, it, look, the the guidelines are clear. Just stick to the guidelines, um, and uh, you you'll be fine. So you know these things from the prophet system. Uh, look, mm. and, and I don't, I, I, don't I wouldn't want to go into like, oh, let me just try to work out. Yeah, if mm. you drink just but, a little bit, I, of that, I think yeah. I think the problem also is that uh, I mean, with the drugs nowadays, and I'm I'm in my mind, I'm thinking. Yeah, the the more uh, chemical type of drugs, mm. right, or chemically um, made Amongst, drugs, yeah, as, yeah. as I say, right. Uh, I don't know what the terminology is right now, mm -hmm. um, but those drugs, yeah, what is in them? Okay, okay cannabis, you know, is a plant at yeah. least, right? And I'm not vindicating. Don't get me wrong. Mm. I'm not vindicating yeah, yeah. the use of it, but at least it's natural, a natural substance, mm. right? Whereas. Um, Heroin, cocaine, all these MDMA, whatever they yeah. are, ecstasy, ecstasy tablets, ketamine—they're they're all drugs, right? Pharmaceutical drugs, yeah. and it's not as if they're mass-produced. Uh, okay, let me rephrase that: they mostly <laughs> are mass-produced, but not legally, yeah. right? They're not in controlled environments. Yeah. I in what I mean by controlled environments is legally in co controlled yeah. environments. They mostly are uh, produced in very clean environments, yeah. but not legally clean environments, yeah, right? Of course. So there's no, there's no. What I'm trying to get to is there's no regulation yeah. of what goes into them. So you don't know what's going into them. Yeah. So when you're sticking whatever pill it is, and this is going back to your uh, or the point of that hadith, which is you can't even have yeah. a granule of it, right? Because you just don't know what's in there yeah. and how addictive it is. And look, it, 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 in terms of medication itself. The, as you you've you've pointed out rightly, anything that is um, you know even if if it's used for the sake of medication, uh, and it's approved by the doctors uh, for your um, for your physical maybe even your mental well being, mm -hmm. that it's approved by the doctors. Now that's that's a completely separate field. Okay, that's um, something which yeah uh, because you know, we have uh, medicinal 
cannabis now, right? Yep. So those people who have uh, problems yep. with uh, pain, yep. uh, and I think it's mainly used as a more of a kind of like a plain uh, regime. Yeah. Uh, then yeah, by all means, you know, you have been a certified uh, doctor yeah. has approved it for you. That's completely different. But when it comes to uh, a certified expert of hey uh, i think this is great for you you know th- th- that's <laughs> you that's the, kind of the corner of the road kind yeah. of, i think this is going to sort you out for the day so that's yeah, uh, that's so. no no that's probably not the way to go about mm. it but then then again look um we sit here in, in these positions of like um uh, as if we are the the voice of reason we we try to be the voice mm. of reason we do not know what's uh, going through the minds or the the lives of those people who yeah, are because in, like that's, yeah. that's the thing runner right you know sometimes you 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 want to fit in yeah. right so peer pressure and you're like all right okay you know what I, I know it's really going against my my religion my upbringing yeah but yeah what's what's once right mm. who's gonna know kind of thing the, the thing is talib um you know people go through very different phases in life okay uh, mm. there are you you could be you could be what, what do you call it straight edge uh, mm-hmm. throughout most of your life and some sort of tragedy, some sort of trauma can uh, derail you. Always. Yeah. It can derail you, and I would never want to personally judge. It. I don't care how good a uh, mm. you know. Well, it's not. It's, uh, it's, it's not I for us ne- to judge. Yeah, it's exactly. Only for Allah to judge, exactly right? for Allah, uh, the Almighty to judge. And someone might just be going through a phase which mm-hmm. we would advise them to be stronger at the time, but mm-hmm. um, maybe it's not necess- necessarily that they, they, they don't necessarily have to be as strong as you are. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's how I would always see it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, then again, look, awareness is always a job that we yeah, could always because, do. Yeah, you because know, it doesn't mean that we promote it. Yeah, you know, we have to obviously point out. You know, you yeah. have to point it out. Right? Yeah. So uh, to further this 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 discussion, we're joined by our first guest of the day on this segment, Doctor uh, Nagba Nadim, who is a GP registrar and uh, uh, a member of the Amor uh, Amori Tulba National Department. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you. Dr. Nadim, thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Wa alaikum assalam. It's good to be back on the show. So we're talking about uh, drugs and, you know, are parents naive uh, to the fact, well, to not their existence, but maybe the reach and how pervasive they are in society now? I mean, from a medical perspective, I mean, what physical and mental uh, health risks are associated with drug use in children. I mean, we've we've you know specified some of them, but what what are the, uh, in your opinion, most serious? Sure. So each and every drug has its own specific physical and mental health risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the most common and probably the most dangerous risk is something you've mentioned, addiction. Mm. So. Addiction is the compulsion to do something regardless of its consequences. And there's a couple of points I just want to mention about this. Addiction in children is extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. That is because children are still developing. The brains are still developing and it can actually affect brain development um, in specifically the prefrontal cortex, the front part of the brain to do with a chemical called dopamine. Mm -hmm. And if a child becomes addicted at a young age, it makes it incredibly difficult for them to stop doing that activity. Moreover, if they become addicted, they're going to continue doing that same substance. They're going to continue using that same substance later on in life. Mm. And that leads to the physical risks of the drugs. So smoking, one of the most common drugs which is used in children, it can lead to 
a higher chance of chest infections. It can lead to an increased risk of asthma. And if they continue smoking through adulthood, it can cause permanent damage to the lungs and potentially even lung cancer. Um, alcohol, um, you briefly mentioned it before. Alcohol is extremely common. It's kind of part of our society, mm-hmm. a part of British culture. Um, so it's a drug which a lot of young people will be offered and exposed to. Um, in children, though, I think the risk of alcohol is probably alcohol-related injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a quick story. When I was working as a doctor, as an ENT doctor, I saw a patient who actually had his ear bitten off by one of his friends just because they were both intoxicated. What? So, yes. <laughs> Mike Tyson. <laughs> yeah, we've seen that in the boxing ring. But, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah go on, carry on, carry on. Yeah, no, so um, it can make people do very silly things. Uh, and also alcohol, alcohol is directly associated with depression mm. as well. And later on in life, it can cause liver problems. Mm-hmm. Um, The final one I just want to touch on very, very briefly, uh, which is also extremely common, is weed, cannabis. Mm -hmm. In young people, well, the common kind of um, notion that people use for weed is it doesn't cause any physical health risks or it doesn't cause the same risk that smoking or alcohol does. Mm -hmm. However, what weed does cause is people to become extremely lazy, Mm -hmm. unproductive. They sleep all day. They have very low energy They're not doing the things they're supposed to do, for example, schooling or hobbies. And there's also a association with um, psychosis and schizophrenia with weed Mm. use. I mean, I think I think, doctor, that the idea of, you know, when when you're intoxicated, I think that's that's the thing. And the the danger for uh, children, right, uh, who are still developing is that they don't have. I suppose, the rationale that an adult has. So say, for instance, an adult were first to try any of those things listed, whether it be alcohol, drugs, uh, smoking, they could maybe just have more of a, I suppose, a level ground in, in terms of deciding whether to carry on with it or not. Because, you know, they're adults at the end of the day. They're developed. They, They have this... Uh, critical thinking or they should have yeah. a critical thinking element uh, to their pers- personality but a child doesn't yeah. and like mm. you said you know with the dopamine it makes you feel good right so why yeah. you know why as children would you not want to feel good mm. well the actual consequences of continuing to take these these actual drugs um the risk of addiction so each, each and every drug has its own physical health problems, as mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So um, instead of kind of risking, you know, the children not being addicted to it, it's just best to stay away from drugs in general. You know, the drugs which change the way you think, which can change development and uh, which can have a hugely negative impact on your life. So mm-hmm. it's best to just stay away from it uh, completely rather than risk, you know, uh, you know, take chances. Mm-hmm. So um, are there specific signs or symptoms that parents should be vigilant about when it comes to potential drug use in their children? Um, there's many different signs and symptoms. Um, some may be more subtle, some may be more obvious. Uh, commonly, I, I think you mentioned a few earlier, but changes in mood or personality. So depending on the drug, some drugs may cause children to feel a lot more withdrawn, depressed, less motivated, 
or they could cause children to feel really hyperactive or have a really high mood. Um, changes in behavior, so how they interact with the family, um, if they avoid eye contact, if they're secretive, locking doors, or mm-hmm. they're out for long periods of time, mm-hmm. um, and if they're constantly asking for money as well, because drugs are very expensive as well, so that should raise alarm bells. Mm-hmm. In terms of a child, if, if he's consuming some type of substance, there may be some risk, uh, there may be some signs from a hygiene and appearance point of view. So, as you know, smoking has a very strong smell, mm. and so does weed, and so does alcohol. So, you know, parents should smell those type of um, substances. If they're really unkempt and messier than usual, they don't take care of their hygiene, uh, those are definitely some red flags that mm. they should look out for. And from a physical health point of view, if the child is suddenly losing weight or gaining a lot of weight, or if they're really, really lethargic in bed all day, or if they're constantly sick, those should also raise alarm bells of potential drug misuse. Mm. But like, I, I do have this question. Um, you know, what kind of um, what kind of drugs would children be able to afford? It's and what sort of money is like? Yeah, but yeah. no, the, the thing is, Rana, right? Uh, yeah, we've done these yeah. shows regarding, for instance, county yeah. lines, and it's not maybe because you know their first. I mean, the question I would, like, right, I would like to ask... that the, they yeah, have to pay for it. The question That's I would what, possibly you know, like to ask is, um, you know, what kind of drugs do you usually see uh, or commonly see are being used by kids? Yeah, true. You know, um, there's a kind of new phenomenon that we're seeing in children. And it's something... I don't think we've discussed this yet. Um, when I was a child, I think the greatest risk was smoking mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. school. Uh, that was the most common drug. Uh, but nowadays, it's use of vaping. Um, right. So that it's is so a lot more common. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Actually, I don't know if you read the papers this morning. I but, think it's been um, banned, isn't it? The uh, disposable vapes. Disposable vapes have been well, banned, Legislation yes. has come through regarding that. Yeah. Yeah. Vaping is, I think it's extremely, extremely common in children. And um, I often, you know, to get to work, I'm driving past uh, this school and there's a lot Hello, doctor. Are you still with us? Are you still with us? Right. I, 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 we're experiencing some technical issues with uh, uh, Dr. Nadim. We'll get back to him as soon as possible. But yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. And I, th- I think he's touched on something that you, know, you do. You see, because it's not illegal, right, to vape. I don't know if there is actually a, a age limit. It is. You, you can't get it from if you're a, unless you're a minor 16. You can't. You you have to be. A, I've 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 discussed this before here as well. Mm. So many times near my local um, news agent, there's kids that are just standing outside asking for you to buy it for them. Right. And okay. uh, the, the, even then, the, the the shopkeeper won't. He's not. They're not stupid. They're not going to mm-hmm. sell it to the. Seeing that there's a bunch of kids who are trying to get it from mm-hmm. them, they they won't sell them. But yeah, it, it's it, it's I think at least minimum sixteen uh, is mm. the age. And well, I think with vaping, uh, there are because it's such a new, it's still a newish yeah. uh, compared to smoking cigarettes, mm. uh, which has been it's since because it's the flavouring as well. Yes, yeah, but no, yeah. I I think it's just the studies into after effects yeah. of long term vaping. Because it hasn't been around for that long, yeah. to say the truth. But we're, I think we've we've got Dr. Nadim back on. Assalamualaikum. Uh, Waalaikum salam. Just got cut off for whatever reason. So you were saying you were driving uh, yes. and you um, see these kids vaping? Yes. Um, vaping is extremely, extremely common. And also, 
children presenting to the clinic and in hospital, um, I actually see a lot of them with vape pens. Mm-hmm. So vape is, vaping is extremely common. And as you mentioned just now, we don't really know the long-term consequences mm-hmm. of vaping. Um, if you just imagine what is in a vape, it's a liquid and um, there's water in there, there's some chemicals and there's flavorings. We don't really know what chemicals there are. Mm. And if you imagine a chemical which has been manufactured to taste like raspberry or strawberry produced in some kind of factory deep in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, Most probably China. Taste, yes, <laughs> most likely China, yes. Um, and we don't know what chemicals they've put in. You know, They might put petrol in there or diesel mm. or whatever, but we don't know the long-term consequences of this. And um, I think it will be a matter of time before we find out. Mm. I mean, what advice do you have for parents uh, f- you know, to ensure that their children you know, don't go down the path of the drug use? And I, and I know that's, that's such a hard question to answer, but you know, let's, let's yeah. p- try and pin you down on this one. Sure. So as someone who's uh, been brought up in the UK, I've gone through school here, I've gone to university here, I've been offered drugs uh, before by different people, um, in school and university, and they've had to decline them um, each time. Mm-hmm. But um, I think there's a tremendous amount of things that parents can do. So I think most of uh, your listeners are Ahmadi Muslims. Mm. Um, so we're Muslims who believe in the Messiah, Hazmid Ghulam Ahmed, Salam. We believe in Khilafat, and that's something unique to us. And within our Jamaat, there's an extremely strong brotherhood and sisterhood mm-hmm. not just at a national level but at a local level mm-hmm. our jamaats are very active so yeah, yeah. so that's if communities boys, if you're yes. a non-amdi <laughs> if you're a non-amdi um, you need to find your own community I guess. right okay <laughs> yes but um you know this kind of brotherhood or sisterhood with positive values i i, I think is extremely important mm-hmm. um also, another thing parents can do is ensuring the child have hobbies. Mm. So I think physical exercise hobbies are probably more important as if you are engaging in a physical kind of sport or activity, you're naturally inclined to look after your own health. Mm-hmm. And if you're really concentrating on a hobby, you won't have time to occupy your mind with trying different drugs or you know, mm. uh, things which turn you away from God. So my own hobby was playing cricket. I played a lot of cricket and I played so much cricket that my shoulder got damaged. So <laughs> so, yeah. so as in Islam we we do teach that the middle road not not excessive, right? Yes. <laughs> Doctor. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I suppose you know in in terms of uh getting out there engaging your kids in a sport, yes. right? Of which yes. you know you partake yourself maybe and you can do yes. as a family uh, together. I mean, that increases your endorphin levels and makes you feel good anyway. Exactly. And it's very good for physical health. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so it's extremely important that uh, as a family, uh, you do activities together, whether it's a simple walk or going to you know, a national park or even going on holiday. Mm-hmm. So what yeah. further resources are available with more information on drugs, the dangers and what to look out for? Um, so we live in a very technologically advanced era. Um, I think Google is a very useful resource, um, and there's a lot of resources that you can find on there. Uh, specifically, uh, a few websites are particularly good. So kidshealth.org it has a section on addiction in children, what to look out for. Um, another website called Partnership to End Addiction 
www.ghostdrugs.org. This website has information on each specific drug and the physical and mental health risks of each particular drug. And of course, the NHS website is pretty good as well. Mm. Uh, just a message to all the parents listening. If you have any concerns that your child is engaging in any sort of drug use, any concerns at all, you can always speak to your pharmacist, the GP. Uh, but also, not only that, but you, you can speak to your local Prodan uh, president or legislative president, mm. and uh, they can hopefully guide you to the right direction. Mm. Okay, Dr. Nadim, thank you very much for uh, sparing us your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. If you want to join in the conversation, please, please do. Uh, or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. In terms of drug use, you know, one of the major things is how do we as parents broach that subject? Mm. Okay, um, it's quite easy, I suppose, with younger children because you know they're, they're not going to talk back to you. Yeah. You're you're their source of information. They're not going to be shy about it as yeah. well. It's not going to be awkward. Yeah, yeah, but that awkwardness does come more so, I think, personally, when you have more teenage kids, right? Um, so, you know, how do we you know, start that conversation? The thing is, it's, a, it's, it's actually a very good, you know, I, I'm already starting to think about that as well, okay? Mm. So, because, um, alhamdulillah, I've got two who I need to look out for in the future as well. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, what connects with children, okay? Mm. What, what, what can you usually show to them, right? Um, pop culture is something which is very, um, you know, even, even though this is voice of Islam, but look, you know, there are things you sh- you can refer to them. And you can say, hey, you know, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Mm. Have you seen how that turned out? Have you seen this? And then, you know, you're starting to build into their mind mm. that um, this, this is actually something that's negative. Like, for instance, you can refer to them maybe a, maybe a, sh- a series on Netflix, okay, mm. which uh, uh, depicts the ill usage of uh, of of drugs and and I think I'm going to jump on to what you're saying yeah. here because obviously too much of a good thing is just too much. Uh, right? You know, let's not let's not like say yeah. oh we don't oh we don't watch these things or mm. we don't no that's not uh, mm. everyone's got something that they 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 can they read about Key or they dramas. exactly yeah sorry man so <laughs> exactly so so that's one way to somehow connect mm. with your with your children because mm. look drugs are never glorified they're, I've mm. not seen they're glory they always show. Th- that eventually the the yeah, uh, I mean ultimately it is it's the the, the, the it is a defeat path, yeah, yeah. right the say for instance you know one of the biggest Netflix series yeah. was Narcos yeah I don't know if you ever watched it I right? started but I, it, but there's it, so yeah. many so many yeah. uh, uh, series of within Narcos yeah. but really it's about drug dealing it's about getting money from selling drugs but ultimately those participants or proponents yeah. of it end up dead they all die yeah. right they all die they always have a target at the back of your head yeah, yeah. exactly so that is what happens when you deal in something which is yeah. sinful right and uh, in terms of that um you know his holiness uh, the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya muslim community uh, mr masoud ahmed has said you know for the sake of entertainment not only children but even adults sit for hours in front of the television mm. so that's what we're saying yeah. too much of a good thing is still it's still a bad thing it's yeah. still a bad thing right now as a result of this some people lose the ability to discern what is evil mm. hence 
His Holiness has advised against watching immoral television programs and treading the dangerous path of indecency. He said, hence, an utmost effort is needed to safeguard oneself from the satanic attacks. Mm. In this regard, Allah the Exalted says that Asan Kal, good word is needed. Mm. So good word meaning, you know, and I think you, you you touched upon that, Rana, was that actually you can use these programs, yeah. but in a positive way. To, t- to, to the point that was in my mind was that there has to be a way of connecting with, with the children. And whatever is in this sense that you can you can connect with them in the sense that you relay to them that these are the negative effects of it mm. um you know y- you you can't sometimes you just can't have those mm. discussions i mean i had um, like openly you can't say hey let's discuss drugs let's discuss how bad yeah because it's, yeah. it's it's, like, it's well, cringe worthy yeah, right exactly yeah. yeah so that's that's um yeah we're all part of the a bigger community yeah. here yeah this is the voice of islam and we are you know the radio station for uh, our community yeah. as well as externally uh, and within our community we have these individual let's call them uh, mm. smaller communities yeah. right so our uh, local community for Worcester Park we had actually a general meeting yeah. so we meet up once a month and we talk about you know things of of interest mm. right and we normally get an imam to come give a speech yeah. and uh, I'm just relating this to yeah. you and and to our listeners so uh, we had uh, we had our general meeting on Saturday, and it was about parenting. Mm. Okay, and uh, we had quite a, a young imam. I think he's twenty nine, Kamar uh, Kamar uh, Ahmed, and he actually presents on Drive Time mm-hmm. show as well, as well as Breakfast Time, and he gave such an engaging talk as to a lot of how do the older generation mm. connect and talk about issues, not just drugs any issue with their children, with younger adults. Mm. And uh, what I took from it was that first and foremost, don't, okay, I'm going to use that word, but don't use don't. Mm. Because if you are negative, and this is in parenting, you say, don't do this, don't do that, don't, and you're so negative, then that's going to foster this this relationship or non-relationship with your children, Mm. right? Whereby... They don't feel that if they actually do have a problem, yeah. they can come to you. Come to you exactly. They can be open t- with yeah. you, right? Uh, but we're, we've got our next guest on uh, online to talk more about this. And uh, we have Dr. Daniel we- uh, Weisberg. Now, Dr. Uh, Weisberg is a highly specialized child clinical psychologist and the managing director of KAYP Psychology, a psychological healthcare service for children, adolescents, and young people. Peace and blessings be upon you, Dr. Weisberg. Thank you for joining us on The Drive Time Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a bit of a mouthful introducing me like that, but thank you very much. For, <laughs> uh, well, we, we, we like to give our guests their full <laughs> moniker, right? So we're talking about um, drugs as an issue for parents. Are we, as parents, naive uh, to the threat and uh, the drugs pose for our children, right? I mean, what proactive measures can uh, parents take to create an open, supportive environment for actually discussing drugs with their children. I mean, uh, runners are saying, yeah, you can't just come out, look, look I'm going to discuss drugs tonight. <laughs> so how do we broach that subject? Great question. And actually, your conversations, the, the whole conversation so far has been brilliant. And I think the, 
you've been talking about some really fascinating concepts, especially this one, because you're right, you can't just suddenly one day um, just say, oh my gosh, we need mm -hmm. to talk about drugs and expect the conversation to be absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. It has to almost be introduced. And I think there's, you use two words here that I think are really important. Um, the first is proactive, and the second is, is open, you know, an open environment. And mm -hmm. you have to build these up. And, and that's by building trust and mm -hmm. communication at home. So we want the household to be a, a foundation of trust. You want to be able to talk about things without that judgment. You were saying just before uh, I came on about um, don't use don't <laughs> double negatives there. I but, know, I said that know, myself. Try, <laughs> <laughs> try not to, to say just it's forbidden, you can't mm. do it. And because by just ruling it out, you're, you're essentially stopping your children from feeling comfortable mm. with talking about things. Mm. Uh, and I've always been of the view that it's much better to talk about not so nice things uh, in a very non-judgmental, open, caring environment rather than completely banning it and saying we don't talk about it. It's absolutely um, a terrible thing to be thinking about at all. And inevitably, children may, I'm not saying everybody, but children may then explore and experiment, but this time behind your back and not mm -hmm. talk to you, and that's a much worse place to be. Mm -hmm. um, so having that trust and communication is important. Um, I, I also really love using positive reinforcement, which is rewarding the good behaviors, rewarding good mm. choices. So when children do avoid certain things or children do tell you and open up about very private matters, reward it. And, and when I say reward, it doesn't have to be something materialistic. Reward it with your attention and your mm -hmm. praise and your yeah. and your kind words. And I think that absolutely it goes so far mm. um, to say, I'm so proud of you. And if you can then that then lays the foundations to then start talking about these things, which is when we can then introduce concepts like critical thinking. You know, mm. how we can do this as adults. If someone gives you some information, we don't just take that information and just run with it. We think about it. Um, so when it comes to children who have been told information about taking drugs, like a friend says, oh, take this, it's going to be great for you. Or yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to hurt. You're not going to get addicted. Exactly. And like, so if you take it on face value, well, maybe that's true. But we want children to start thinking, is that the whole picture? Um, mm -hmm. Maybe there's something more behind this. We can help them think about potential consequences. And what does it mean? How do you make informed choices when you're only given part of the picture, especially when part of that picture is peer pressure, which makes it very difficult for children to manage. Mm. So what role does early intervention play in preventing or addressing drug-related issues in children and adolescents? Oh, it's a brilliant question. So the early intervention side is, is absolutely key here. So it fits into what we know about prevention rather than treatment. Mm -hmm. So early intervention helps to prevent problems from getting worse or even happening in the first place rather than us being too late down the line and then having to fix it essentially. So that early intervention can help us to identify risk factors. You know, we can we can identify things that go a little bit wrong. We know when uh, we can help children think about family histories and mental health difficulties, peer mm. pressure. Is there a history in the family that we need to be aware of that we can help to manage and overcome? Mm -hmm. Can we help children build coping skills? Uh, how do we manage stress? It doesn't have to be stress about drugs. It can be stress about anything. Mm -hmm. um, if we're stressed about an upcoming exam or uh, a football game or, or something, 
if we can teach children to manage their emotions, to talk about those emotions, to manage their own difficult feelings without them reverting to something bad like dangerous behavior or potentially even drugs. Well, that's a brilliant strategy to help children mm. learn. Yeah, because and, one of the things that just occurred to me, Dr. Weisberg, was mm. that, you know, drugs uh, per se, uh, they're inanimate, right? They're, there's nothing good or bad about them. It's just the way that you use them. Um, and so say, for instance, uh, in my head, I was like thinking of the example of maybe and you mentioned it's stress. OK, so you might have adolescent kids, maybe kids. Uh, well, I say kids. They're at university. They're away at university. So they're, they're away from the, the family home. You, you know, you don't have one to one contact with them until they want to get their clothes cleaned or something like that. Right. <laughs> so. You know, and they, they, they have their own stress. You know, they're getting ready for exams or they're doing, you know, they're putting in some essay. They might have their own colleagues, you know, their own fellow students, right? Saying, look, I'm taking these, you know, caffeine supplements or whatever it may be, right? Just to keep me up, just to keep me on edge so I can get through that work. You know, how, how, and, and that's almost like you're, you're saying, I say drugs, but whatever they're taking is uh, for a positive outcome. It's not just for, you know, just feeling high, getting that dopamine fix. It's, mm -hmm. you know, there, there is a, a, a raison d'etre for taking it. How do you, you know, how do you address that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, it's a brilliant example. Um, but it's, that, that's what I would call a, a fake short-term fix mm -hmm. um, because that doesn't help to resolve the problems. Um, it's almost just trying to, deal with the, the surface level difficulty, which is I'm, I'm exhausted, I'm really stressed out, I just need something to help me through it. And if we're starting to do that at, in teenagehood or, or later adolescence, university age, well, what messages is that going to teach us for the rest of our life? Mm. Life is stressful, mm -hmm. life is difficult, um, and we want to find more helpful ways of managing. Mm -hmm. um, maybe taking that pill is fine and it helps you get through that moment but i would argue that's not the most helpful way of managing with that mm -hmm. maybe we need to find more supportive ways of dealing with the stress which would go back to what you were saying before is there some sports we can do some mm -hmm. activities maybe actually i need a break from all of this mm -hmm. um and 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 perhaps more adaptive ways of coping and more helpful ways mm -hmm. is uh, building that into children's life mm -hmm. yeah exactly so i mean how can you know, parents strike that balance then because it will be a tricky balance between you know, fostering that trust mm -hmm. and maintaining boundaries when it comes to uh, monitoring, you know, what their activities and what maybe potentially, you know, drug use there may be. Yeah. Um, I I'm glad you brought this up, actually, because monitoring is something that we we talk about quite a lot, um, especially with parents of, of teenagers and, um, and, and young adults. Mm. So... We, I, I think it's, it's really helpful to know what our children are up to. Mm. But you can't just expect to be told everything. And equally, you can't just look at what they're doing um, with no consequences. There has to be that balance. Mm. And, and I think if we have in a household very clear expectations for what our boundaries are, what our expe expectations are, um, and it's a very open, communicative household, we're in a brilliant position to introduce something like monitoring, which is saying, I think it's important 
for us to be looking at what you're doing and looking at what, who you're talking to and making sure that you're safe. Mm-hmm. Um, if we explain to children that as a parent, we're not particularly interested in what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. We're more interested in who you're talking to and mm-hmm. are you safe whilst doing that. So it's not about trust. Um, it's not about we don't believe you or we don't trust you to do your own things. Yeah, it's, it's just about, about making personal sure that security, you're safe. right? Completely. Yeah. And that is so important to say. Um, and, and also to say that this isn't a lifetime punishment for you. We're not mm. going to be watching everything you're mm. doing for the rest of your life. Now, at, when you're a youngster, we just want to make sure everything's safe. But mm. as you get older, you demonstrate to us that you are responsible and that you can be more independent and that we can trust you. Then we'll, we'll tone down that monitoring. Mm. You can do things yourself and we're here if you need to talk to us um it's so so how would that how would you adjust that kind of because that that's that's a real long term and you have to be there right at the inception right of your Mm. kids to in to institute this type of gradual monitoring and lessening of the monitoring as they get older but say for instance you've never monitored them because you've believed them but now They've flown the coop, uh, the coop, right? They're away at university. I'm saying this because my kids, are, my boys are away at university. Right. So how, because I can see the arguments coming or the, or not arguments, but how they would um, kind of like rally against this. Like, oh, you're intruding into my personal space. Mm. What's all that about? Yeah. You know, I'm my own person. Well, don't you trust me? So it's, it's those things mm. that they throw back at you, right? And how, how, as a parent, do you adjust your strategy in monitoring to accommodate that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that is a very difficult question. In fact, it taps into why the numbers of young people who use Facebook as a social media platform are, have declined over the years mm-hmm. because youngsters know that their parents are on it and find it really <laughs> okay. embarrassing right. um, that, that they use it. Um, but but that, that's an important point. You can't suddenly, you know, now that they've left left the house or they're, they're in a different part of the country and you're trying to keep tabs on what's going on, that's really difficult. Um, but it, it comes back to that open communication that I'm still here, you can talk to us. If anything's wrong, you're, you're welcome to come and talk to me and it's not judgmental. We're not here to punish you we're here to support you um and to it it, it, i would say it's about education rather than interrogation um we want to share that knowledge share that relationship keep an open relationship going Mm -hmm. but not in a punishing detrimental um judgmental way Mm. so what resources or support systems are available for parents who may feel overwhelmed or uncertain about uh, about addressing drug related issues with their children um, yeah, th- there is lo- lots out there. Um, Dr. Nadim, who spoke before, gave mm-hmm. a couple of good examples, actually. Um, there is a lot out there. The one thing that I would say be very, worth, be very careful of is typing into Google, my child's using cannabis or something like that, um, because the first few pages that you'll see will be message boards, um, like boards on Reddit or Momsnet. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's often totally unregulated forums of parents who are potentially quite understandably worried and panicked Mm. uh, but often you're not getting the most valid up-to-date information and you want to be looking for those well 
well-researched, well-structured websites. So like NHS websites mm -hmm. give you loads of information. The charities specifically about drugs and alcohol um, are, are really helpful. Um, but also talking to teachers and, and professors and your, your GPs um, uh, uh, is really helpful, as well as looking through books and apps and, and even support groups that might be local to you. So, so there is a lot out there. Sometimes you do have to do a bit of research to find what's out there. Um, but if you're finding things difficult, don't be, don't be alone and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and reach out. There, there is support out there. So as a final question, Dr. Weisberg, mm. right, what if you know, you've, you've done your best and then you notice, because we, we were saying earlier on uh, in the topic, you know, how to notice if your child has um, you know, become addicted right uh mm. to substance abuse of any sorts you know they're a bit withdrawn they're a bit bedraggled you know some of the the, mm -hmm. the um things that dr nadine was saying earlier on so say you know uh if in the worst case scenario you do notice that your 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 child your your teenager has you know maybe developed a, an addiction how do you address that then mm. um y yes if you're if you do see some changes you notice something's different or mm -hmm. you're you're just concerned that gut feeling as a parent if you just feel yeah, something right. isn't quite right she's not right absolutely then uh then raise it um and but if you just launch into oh gosh you look terrible something must be wrong you're probably going to be met with oh you're so embarrassing dad go away mm. sort of thing um and the conversation will just end there it's more about that gentle introduction of, you know, it looks like things are a bit difficult. Uh, I can mm -hmm. see you're upset. Um, we're here if you want to talk about anything. Um, I've, uh, in the past, just left a leaflet. Um, it, it was in, like, I left it in the reception area of our clinic, actually. So this was with a young person who just didn't want to talk about anything. Mm -hmm. But we could see that there was something going on. I just left a couple of relevant leaflets just where I knew they would see them. Um, didn't say anything, and then they were taken. That, that young person took them, mm -hmm. um, so he was sort of gradually introducing this idea of saying there is support out there without mm -hmm. it being so um, in your face, mm -hmm. if you will. And uh, and you know, having fingers point, you know, being judgmental, I suppose. Mm, yeah. Uh, Excellent. Yeah, well, uh, Dr. Weisberg, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Really informative. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Appreciate you having me. Thanks so much for bringing this topic up. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. Well, good evening by now. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 0208-687-787 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK, especially if you want to know about those websites because it is, yeah, it's a big issue, isn't it, yeah. Rana, really out there? Oh, yeah, of course, um, because uh, you, and as we, we alluded to earlier on, our best that we can do here is maybe somehow draw some sort of awareness uh that to this subject and hopefully if that awareness or that education or that help could uh somehow lead anyone who might be going through some sort mm -hmm. of issues uh, in, in especially in relation to their own children or identifying issues um that could be uh hidden from yeah. to, to them so yeah uh, because you know that you know our children whether they be you know youngsters uh teenagers young adults right yeah. they, they they are themselves they're their own person anyway right yeah. 
Uh, and you know, we're going back to the question of you know whether you know, as parents, you know, are parents too naive about drugs? Uh, actually, underscores the importance of acknowledging, you know, what you've said and what our guests have said. Mm. It's a complex challenge uh, for parents who face face this, these issues and navigating their children through, you know, this you know, ever evolving landscape of. You know, all these drugs are out there, mm. right? Uh, while some parents actively engage in open communication, education, monitoring, others may struggle uh, due to factors like lack of information uh, or discomfort. I mean, and one of those issues is discomfort, really. Mm. You know that that uh, uh, old adage, you know, there's the elephant in the room. Yeah. But no one wants to talk about exactly, it, right? Exactly, yeah. And this is one of those, not so taboo s- subjects, but I suppose... Yeah, a lot of parents wouldn't want to approach that mm. if they had an inkling maybe uh, their child was suffering from it because really, you know, sometimes, you know, the truth hurts, right? Yeah, and it also depends on uh, the nature of the... Look, we, we always talk about children. We don't, we don't know... Everyone's nature is very different, okay? The child's nature could be... Uh, they could not be... They may not be cooperative. The parent might not be cooperative. Uh, the the parent might be very short-tempered as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm just thinking from my experience with uh, people who I know are, have, and their parents or my own parents, for instance. You know, I, I don't think... Uh, I wouldn't do anything out of fear, mm-hmm. mainly out of fear, okay? Okay. Uh, and I don't want my dad to be on my case. Okay, that's that. Well, <laughs> yeah. he, God, no, because you have in, respect God, for him. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, he's in heaven now, Alhamdulillah. Mm. But uh, um, this is the point I'm making. Not not everyone has, uh, you know, someone might have a very soft p- parent, um, mm. and they might think, "Hey, I don't care what he thinks." Okay, mm. and uh, or well, I can yeah, get away. Yeah, with it. exactly. And then there's others. You know, they 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 generally have maybe you you use the word respect. Some could use the word fear as well. Okay, mm. so. Um, it, 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 we, ha- there is no like right answer. Mm. Okay, okay. If we, if we do this, this will be right. If mm. we do that, that will be. You know, s- some of these conversations could kick off into real. Um, the kids just leaving the home forever as mm. well. Okay. Well, we try not to do. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. No, of course not. <laughs> of course not. But that's what I'm saying. You yeah. know, reality is is far. And I from, think it's one of the points yeah. that uh, definitely Dr. Weisberg uh, was saying that we as parents have to engage. Yeah, yeah don't use the double negative, and, uh, don't, engage don't. And also just build that sort of tolerance, okay? Mm. You know, you, you might be this, uh, for instance, from our own uh, so, social background or mm. whatever, in our society, in our community, a lot of people are, you know, they might have parents who are cab drivers, mm-hmm. okay? They might be working, uh, now Uber apparently has done a 12-hour or 10-hour maximum shift, mm-hmm. but there, were, there was times when they were, uh, driving for 14 to yeah. 16 hours a day, okay? Now, when they come home and they see something which they don't like in their child, okay, especially I, 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 I always allude to Hanif Qureshi's mm-hmm. uh, writing about, um, he wrote a, he wrote a novella called uh, My Son the Fanatic. It's a, it's a fascinating read. Mm-hmm. It explains the, you know, the mindset of the British Pakistani taxi mm-hmm. driver who's migrated. And they may not, Okay, if they see something which they do not uh, like in their child, it, it could, you know, result into serious conflict mm-hmm. uh, between father and son, or father and daughter, or uh, even with the mother as well. Okay, mm-hmm. the, you know, you're not raising the kids properly. So, mm-hmm. 
you know, there's yeah, we don't want to get into yeah. There's that a lot of complex yeah, complex complex issues, yeah. but I mean, Islam understands that it may not be easy for a person to break away from addiction, so it does not exclude or discourage the use of outside resources such as counselling, rehabilitation, and the most potent tool is prayer and begging for Allah's mercy. And we're coming to the end of the show. Need to have a big thank you to our producers, uh, Sana Nadim, Nabahat uh, Naira. Tamina Tahir and Aisha Tahir. Also my co-host, Imam Rana Atta. This was uh, Monday's edition of The Drive Time Show.